This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. Back in the 1990s, there was a movie. It was titled Three Weddings and a Funeral. The title is catchy, Three Weddings and a Funeral, uh, yet it wasn't a movie that made my must-see list. With that said, the title stood out to me as I was considering Ruth. You see, the story of Ruth is the exact opposite. We see three funerals and a wedding. If you were to think back to Ruth chapter 1, There were four individuals that were named in the very first paragraph of this book. There was the man named Elimelech. We talked about him a few moments ago. There was his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Chilion. Well, by the end of the second paragraph, three of those four were dead. By the end of the second paragraph of Ruth, three of the four protagonists, three of the four main characters, so to speak, were dead, buried, leaving only Naomi alive. Now... All things being equal, that would seem to set the stage for just a great tragedy. I mean, any time you pick up a book, and by the end of the second paragraph, most all the characters are dead, you say, well, this is going to be kind of a downer. However, however, no one remembers the book of Ruth for the funerals it contains, but everyone remembers it for the marriage that it concludes with. By the time we get to today's text, we are four weeks deep, we're in chapter four, we're going to see that the terrible start to the story, the start that involved death, the start that involved famine, the start that involved widows and lack of hope and the like has been replaced in chapter four by just this wonderful, great, glorious and encouraging ending. In chapter 4, where we're at today, death has given way to joy. Depression's given way to hope. The anxiety and the bitterness that Naomi, the widow, had spoken of at great length in chapter 1 is gone. Chapter 4 of her story was a whole lot better than chapter 1. And for what it's worth, I'll make one more observation. But really, that same storyline, it's the same one that the whole Bible has. See, the Bible starts with sin and death and decay. The Bible starts with the fall, and it doesn't get better. At least in the first number of chapters, there's death upon death upon death, funeral upon funeral upon funeral across its pages, and really that's true from one end to the other. However, however, the Bible, just like the book of Ruth, concludes well. It starts with death, ends with a marriage. The Bible starts with something bad and ends with the wedding supper of the Lamb. The track that we see in Ruth is the track we see across the course of Scripture. All right, let's look at the end of Ruth now. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, then just we'll work our way through the balance of these verses. So verse 1 again. Boaz. Boaz went up to the gate. He sat down. Behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz says, come aside, my friend. Sit down here. So he came aside and he sat down. Then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, has sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, then do so. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. Then the man said, I will, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. All right, 
As you remember, at the end of chapter 3, Ruth had asked Boaz. She laid down his feet on the threshing floor during the night. This was a symbolic act. It culminates in a question. Ruth asked Boaz to redeem, to spread his wings, so to speak, over her, to redeem her and all that belonged to the family line. Well, Boaz, in the preceding chapters, we had seen that he had come to fall for Ruth. She was a woman of integrity. She was diligent. She was well regarded by all who encountered her. And so he told her, yes, however, however, like many romantic stories often have, there was a problem. And the problem was this. There was a third party. See, Ruth had asked Boaz, Boaz, you are in line. You're the kinsman redeemer. Please extend your grace, your care to me, to the family line. He said, yes, but there was another man who was even closer and who legally had both the opportunity and you could say the obligation to step in, to take this role, to take this place. Now, we don't know a lot about this guy. Scripture almost goes out of the way not to identify him by name here. We don't know a lot about this guy, but we know that legally he had a strong case to be made as the Redeemer. So before Boaz could proceed any further, he needed to find out this guy's intention. Boaz himself was a man of integrity, and he believed in checking the appropriate boxes and doing the right thing. And so he knows that he has to extend this opportunity first to this man. So in verse 1, Boaz goes and he sits down at the city gate. This is where business was done. If you wanted to conduct business, if there was meetings, if there was a place just to be seen and to see others, you went to the city gate. So Boaz figures, well, I'll go sit at the city gate. That's where all the important people are anyway, and I'll wait until this man comes by. Well, it appears that he didn't have to wait for very long. And soon, both Boaz and this other man, along with ten elders of the city, they agreed to sit down and to talk this issue through. It was a standard approach to arbitration. You gathered witnesses, the wise men, so to speak, of the city, and they sat and discussed until you came to some sort of resolution. Now, as chapter 3 begins, Boaz informs this man that their mutual relative, Naomi, that she's returned. That rumor had already spread. People began to realize that she was back. But he also says here that Naomi has been compelled by her circumstances to have to sell some of the family land. Now, if you remember, back earlier in Scripture, when the land was apportioned, it was apportioned to tribes, and from those tribes down into families. It was not a small thing to have your land go outside of the family line, and it was very desirable for it to be brought back to the family line. Now, Naomi, out of hardship, had been forced to sell it. However, there was therefore now an opportunity for others in the family line to potentially purchase it. And this guy's eyes undoubtedly perked up at this news. Because one's property was yoked to one's household name, the opportunity existed for this man to redeem it on behalf of the family estate, and that probably sounded pretty good to this guy. He could redeem the family line, and on the one hand, he'd seem heroic for intervening and jumping in, and who would also be one step closer to being a real estate baron, so to speak. So there's no downside. We don't know all the dynamics, but we know this. There was no downside because this guy didn't wait a moment. The moment that came out of Boaz's mouth, what the scenario was, he didn't say, well, I got to go talk to my accountant. You know, I got to go to H&R Block or whatever and figure out the tax ramifications. He doesn't do any of that. He just says this, I'll do it. He says, I will redeem it. He doesn't wait, doesn't hedge, doesn't beat around the bush. He immediately says, I will redeem the land. Now, if you're Boaz, let alone if you're Ruth and Naomi, your heart price skips a beat. 
Because you know at this moment that if this man does step in to redeem the land and therefore to be in a position to marry Ruth, that that is the exact opposite of what you desire. You desire that this man would say no. And so when he says yes, you're probably a bit animated, at least inside about it. With that said, Boaz was prepared. He expected that this might happen. And so he reminds the guy. He says, look, there's just one other thing. On the day that you do this, on the day that you buy the field, Mr. Would-be Real Estate Tycoon, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Now for us, we might not understand the contingency that's just been inserted into this. However, in this culture, this was a huge deal. In fact, it would be a show-stopping deal. See, what Boaz was saying was that the redemption of the property was not the only thing that this guy was going to have to do. He was also going to have to redeem the persons and the posterity of a dead man. He was not only going to have to come in and buy the land, he was also going to have to marry Ruth, and in marrying Ruth, have children, and having children through Ruth, those children would be in a position to take hold of his inheritance. And they would grow up in a Limelech's family line and not in his. So if this man really wanted this land this badly, it was going to mean marrying a woman from a pagan nation whose son would therefore be entitled to the very land that he himself was pursuing along with other aspects of his inheritance. Whatever he perceived his legacy to be was going to get really messed up or changed if he was to agree to this scenario. When it was just a matter of real estate, he was cool with it. But when Ruth got thrown into the equation, it was far more complicated. He wanted no part of that. So let's see his response. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. And the close relative said... I cannot. I cannot. See how fast he changed his mind. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and so this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And so he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So in verse 6, this other unnamed guy says the equivalent of no dice. He hears about Ruth. He suddenly dawns on him what's going to be involved. And he says, uh-uh, can't do it, won't do it. You do it, he tells Boaz. You want the property, you want all the headaches that's going to come with this. It's all yours. Now, the reason this man gave for not taking on the responsibility of the Redeemer, notice it was purely financial. What he was saying to Boaz was, look, if I do this, it will clash with my self-interest. I cannot redeem it for myself, he said, lest I ruin my own inheritance. I can't do something that maybe I should do. I can't do it, though, because it'll mess up my plans. I will ruin my own inheritance if I do the thing I ought to do here. The man had the opportunity and even the obligation, really, to redeem Naomi and Ruth, but he didn't esteem their needs as highly as he esteemed his own. 
As a side note, aren't you glad that that guy has never been in a position to redeem you or I? Imagine if our souls hung in the balance and that this guy was in a position to be our redeemer. This stingy fellow, the sort of guy who's not willing to sacrifice anything of himself. Imagine that that guy was the one who was in a position to purchase us back from sin and death. I wouldn't like our chances. What if Christ himself had looked upon us in our hour of need and said, I cannot redeem them for myself, lest it ruin my inheritance. You know, here's the wonderful thing about Jesus. In the eyes of Jesus, we are his inheritance. In Micah 7, we read that Jesus will shepherd his people with his staff, the flock of his inheritance. In the eyes of Jesus, you are the great consolation for everything he did on Calvary. You are the inheritance. You are that which he desires. You are that which he pursues. Later in Micah, the rhetorical questions ask this, who is a God like you who pardons iniquities, passes over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? See, in the eyes of God, you are worth every sacrifice to redeem, and when he had the opportunity to redeem you, he didn't wait. He didn't hesitate. He didn't waver. He had the only currency available to buy you back, to redeem you, to redeem me from sin and death. He had the only currency, and he didn't hesitate a moment in spending it when our life was on the line. That's the exact opposite of what we see in this guy in verse 6. This guy's in a position to redeem. He's got the means to do it. And he says, no, because it's not in my self-interest. Well, whatever the case, when this close relative declined to proceed, Boaz wasted no time in stepping forward. And he said this in verse 9. He said, you all are witnesses. Y'all are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And then in order to seal this deal, the unnamed relative had taken the sandal off his foot, extended to Boaz, much like when Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet in chapter 3, this was an action that had symbolic significance to those who were of this time and age and culture. All right, let's look at verses 11 through 17. Verse 11, And all the people who were at the gate, the elders and the like, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Epitah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord shall give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. You ever want to know anything about the character of Ruth? Listen to what the other ladies, the other women of the town said. They told Naomi, Ruth is better for you than any seven sons would be. This speaks highly of, of Ruth herself. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is born a son to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse the father of David. All right. After all the legal wrangling had concluded, it would appear that the people who were hanging around the city gate, that they stepped forward to congratulate Boaz regarding his pending marriage to Ruth. 
And that congratulation took on the form of blessings. In Jewish culture, Jewish society, when you wanted to encourage someone strongly or when you wanted the best for them, you would offer a blessing to them, a benediction, so to speak. And we see these blessings given first to Boaz and then to Naomi. First, the people congratulated Boaz, who was married shortly thereafter, in verse 13, to Ruth. And then the women blessed Naomi after she became a grandmother in verse 14. Now let's stop and think about Naomi again for a moment. What a whirlwind few years this was. For us, it's just four chapters. You know, we got to the one end to the other, you know, reasonably quickly. For Naomi, this took a period of time. And when things started in chapter one, her situation again was terrible. She was penniless. She was hopeless. She was a widow. She was destitute. There was a famine in the land. She wasn't even in her home country. She was in Moab. As bad circumstances go, you can't get much worse than that. Apart from being dead, you can't get too much worse than where Naomi found herself in chapter one. But by the time you get to chapter four, what a different story. What a different story you have here. By the time we get to verses 16 and 17 of today's reading, everything has changed. At this point, Naomi's no longer bitter. Remember how bitter she was in chapter one? She told the people, don't even call me Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. She was so bitter that she wanted her name to reflect that bitterness. That's where she was. However, by the time we get to verses 16 and 17, she's no longer bitter. She's no longer bitter at this point. She's no longer without hope. She's no longer scared and apprehensive about the future. Only a decade earlier, God's wrath had been poured out. A terrible drought had filled Judah, Bethlehem, and the surrounding land. It was well-deserved. People had been bad. Consequences were due. But God's anger doesn't abide forever. Even when the people have departed in some of the most egregious ways that you can depart from God, which the Old Testament is filled with, God would render justice because he's a just God, and yet he was quick to bring grace and mercy and provision, and in this case to bring the rains. The rains had returned, the crops grew, and Naomi had watched it happen. She'd watched life go from one state of affairs to another. The woman who had lost her husband and her two sons, by the time we get to verse 16, chapter 4, she's now cradling a child in her lap who would be the grandfather of King David and would be in the family line of the Messiah himself. You would never have seen any of that coming back in chapter 1. You would never have anticipated that there was any hope, let alone any much life left for Naomi and Ruth, given their hardships. Even when Naomi couldn't see it, though, there was still hope on the horizon. Even when she couldn't see it in chapter 1, God saw it, God ordained it, God decreed it, and he brought it about by chapter 4. Many of us, I've said this in previous weeks, many of us, we're still in chapter one, maybe chapter two or what have you, but we're still in the midst of hardship and heartache and difficulty. We're in the midst of a famine and a drought of a different kind, maybe a spiritual or emotional kind, but we're in the midst of some hardship. And we look around, we don't understand it. We feel bitter. If you've never been there in your life to date, just wait. It might be right around the corner. It does happen. It's a byproduct of living in a fallen world. But here's the thing. We live in a fallen world, but we serve a loving God. And this God makes us promises. And in due time, the story of Naomi went from despair and hopelessness to the point that she's cradling the grandfather of King David in her lap. And she's part of the family line of the Messiah yet to come. 
Naomi's story improved tremendously. Our stories have good outcomes if we can wait, if we can hold on. Now, the same was true for Ruth. At one point, Ruth was as lost as lost can be. She also lost her husband. But there was something even worse in Ruth's case. Ruth was outside of the covenant community. Ruth was a Moabitess. There was no reason to expect anything good of her. And yet, in her moment of doubt and anxiety and fear, she did the one thing that all men, all women are called to do. She looked up. She turned to the God of Israel, under whose wings she sought out refuge. And in Ruth's hour of need, God did not lead her down the wrong path. God did not fail her or forsake her. But he sent her someone. He sent her a redeemer named Boaz. God sent someone to redeem, to rescue Ruth. Does that remind you of anyone else? Specifically, the one that God sent was willing to do whatever was necessary. He was willing to sacrifice himself in order to redeem and restore Ruth, to fulfill the covenantal obligations that he had as a close family member. And the result that we saw in verses 11 through 17 was a marriage between this redeeming groom and the bride that he loved and gave himself for. This is a picture of the gospel, and it's meant to be seen just as that. All these centuries before Jesus, we see a picture of Jesus in the book of Ruth. As it said in chapter 1, the book of Ruth is so much more than boy meets girl. There is romance in this book. There is a love story in its pages. But make no mistake, Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, these are secondary characters. Jesus Christ, as is true in every book of the Bible, he is central. And this book points forward to him. When Boaz redeemed Ruth, that action anticipated a greater redemption. When Boaz redeemed Ruth, it foreshadowed the coming of the ultimate Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to prove that Jesus is anticipated and seen through this text was how the book closes with Naomi holding in her lap the grandfather of King David, the family line who Jesus himself would emanate from, and the very town in which Jesus would be born in. Remember Joseph and Mary? Where was Jesus born? What city? Bethlehem. Why were Joseph and Mary there? There was a census. Joseph had to go back to where his home was. This was in Bethlehem, and all this was ordained from centuries past. Again, you could not have seen it in chapter 1, and yet God had ordained it well before chapter 1. All right, as we close this morning, again, I'll echo what I mentioned a couple moments ago. I know that folks are hurting. When we come into church, there is a tendency we have, if someone's asked, how are you doing? What do you say? Fine. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? And we exchange the pleasantries and the like. Meanwhile, for some of us, our very hearts are breaking. Meanwhile, for some of us, we've experienced great loss or this fear about something tomorrow. We don't always admit that. Even in a church setting where we could, we don't always admit that. But pastorally speaking, I know it to be true. I know that many of us are going through hardships that we long to be redeemed from, that we long to be rescued from. Some of us are in chapter 1, and some of us might have even concluded that God is dealing bitterly with us. However, however, if, if we could just fast forward to the end of our story, if we could just fast forward to chapter 4, so to speak, we would see how it turns out, and it turns out well. If you're a child of God this morning, then know this, even the worst circumstances can be used of God to accomplish something wonderful. To bring about fruit, you would never guess, is possible. The future not only can be better, but if you're a son or daughter of God this morning, it will be better. You may live to see those days, and you'll certainly see them on the other side of the veil. With that said, are you willing to wait? This is where faith is cultivated. This is where trust comes from. 
when you're compelled to trust by circumstances you don't like and understand, when you're compelled to trust in a God who oversees those same circumstances and whose nature you've come to love. Are you willing to be faithful and trust Him in the midst of whatever you're going through today? In God's time, there is hope on the horizon. If there was hope for Naomi, there's hope for every last one of us. Because our horizon meets in the same place that Naomi's did, at the feet, the throne of our Redeemer. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.